The opinions expressed on this program represent the viewpoints of individual authors or contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of Troy University. This is eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dan Sutter. Hello and welcome to eConversations. I'm your host, Dr. Dan Sutter of the Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. The facts of an economy, in other words, what goods and services consumers demand and what the best ways to produce them are given our resources and uh, technology will change over time. But economics as a discipline has identified some timeless truths or lessons. Remembering these truths or lessons helps both economists and citizens understand the world around them, especially when our politicians try to deny or obfuscate some of these truths. The U.S. is now emerging from the COVID-19 pandemic as nearly half of Americans are fully vaccinated with one of our highly uh, effective vaccines, which were developed in less than a year. The pandemic offered some unprecedented economic challenges, but the truths of economics remained true during the pandemic, and remembering these lessons could have improved some of our government's policy responses. Joining me on the show today to discuss the COVID pandemic and how it reflected these lessons is Dr. David R. Henderson, a fellow with the prestigious Hoover Institution at Stanford University and Professor Emeritus at, from the uh, Naval Postgraduate School in, in California. Dr. Henderson earned his PhD in economics from UCLA and in addition to his teaching position at the Naval Postgraduate Sir School, served as an economist uh, in the Reagan administration. He has written and blogged on numerous topics over the years and today he's joining us to discuss a piece he recently authored for a Reason magazine called The Economic Lessons from, from COVID-19. Welcome back to the show, David. Thanks, Dan. So, uh, as I mentioned, you know, we have some, you know, the, the facts or the details in economics often change and we may not, all, even as economists, be aware of all of the facts, but some of the truths are, are a little more enduring. And so, one of you, uh, you had this great piece in Reason, and I thought it would be a great way to talk on, uh, touch on some of these lessons and uh, illustrate both the lessons themselves and then how they uh, applied in, in the pandemic. So I thought we could get started here, and the, one of the first uh, lessons we'll, we'll look at is deals with incentives and the power of incentives. So tell us uh, about this truth here from economics. Right. So when I used to teach, I'm, I'm emeritus now, I would always the first day lay out what I call the 10 pillars of economic wisdom. And number two was incentives matter. Now, there's an economist you probably know about named Steve Landsberg, who said recently or said a couple of years ago, people respond to incentives. The rest is detail. In other words, once you get that incentives matter, you'll see how they matter everywhere. And so in this situation with this pandemic governments made very quick decisions typically governors sometimes mayors very quick decisions based on little information and their incentive wasn't to make particularly good decisions when there were when was damage done by their idea by what their policies were they didn't bear much of the cost they, their their mm -hmm. pay didn't fall a penny in fact some of them gained positive notoriety like uh, Governor Cuomo in New York, who, by the way, might be responsible for at least a few thousand deaths in, in care homes because he made them take people out of the hospital 
who had COVID or might have COVID made the care homes take them back and spread it. So incentives matter. When government does these things, they don't have the right incentives. On the other hand, people in the private sector have strong incentives to do productive things because if they screw up, they lose. So I wrote a piece, not the piece we're talking about, called COVID versus capitalism, in which I laid out how pretty much everything done by Amazon and Zoom and all those things was incredibly productive because they had the incentive to do those productive things. And that made the losses from the lockdowns and the losses from COVID, I distinguished between the two, that made those losses less than otherwise. No, you talk about incentives, like in markets, those incentives usually come in the form of the prices. And then if right. you're a business, those prices are eventually going to lead to profits or, or losses. So those are our, our main form of economic incentives. But we do mean, when we talk about incentives as economists, we do mean more than just those narrow economic incentives, right? That's right. That's right. And that's why I mentioned the, the, the politicians and so on who didn't, don't have profits and losses, but they do, can do great damage and their incentive not to do damage is very slight. And uh, one of the examples I, I think where we could see, if people were doubting that incentives matter, uh, has come with uh, the extension of, with, with the additional uh, unemployment benefits that the federal government uh, passed initially in the initial CARES Act and then renewed a, a couple of times further. Right? And again, if, if you know that incentives matter, then this, this probably shouldn't come as any surprise, right? That's right. In the original CARES Act in March, March of 2020, there was a provision that was bipartisan, which is incredible when you think about it, to add $600 a week of federal money to unemployment benefits. So it meant that approximately 20 million people would make more money being unemployed than being employed. Should, should we have been surprised that they didn't immediately get jobs once some of the lockdowns ended in the summer? No. And then Trump, because he couldn't get a bill, extended it by executive action. And then they got a bill under, under Biden to make it $300, which is less bad than 600. And that goes to, to September. And so again, we shouldn't have been surprised. I wrote about this when we got the unemployment data a month ago and this one million new jobs people were expecting turned out to be a quarter of a million. People, you know, you're gonna get a free summer vacation essentially. And so, yeah, incentives really matter there too. And I think initially in the CARES Act, they had a provision saying that if you were laid off from your job, but then your employer was trying to call you back to work because you know we were closing some businesses and we were expecting them to reopen, that, that you were supposed to go back to work or, or you, you know, would lose your unemployment benefits. But I think that ended up getting cut out at some point. And, and so- we, Yeah, we, I'm not really sure exactly what happened, except I do know the story in the Wall Street Journal about employers who said explicitly, this was last summer, I don't dare call them back because I'm going to have a very angry labor force when this whole thing ends. So even though I could call them back, right. I don't dare. There were a number of major employers saying that. And now I mean, there's all kinds of reports across the country of businesses have, you know, not being able to open the full hours that they would like to open simply or, or yeah. having to stay closed simply because they can't find help. And especially in yeah. a lot of the you know, and it seems to be concentrated in these uh, industries where, like, say, food service uh, restaurants right. are, are one of the ones that, that right. you hear about, or coffee shops, 
that would have been closed for a while. So those people lost their jobs. They're, they've been collecting unemployment, and uh, you know it's it's difficult to get them to come back to work. Yeah, and by the way, always the optimist. <laughs> I do see a little positive here. And that is a lot of teenagers are going to have some incredible opportunities this summer mm. because to get yeah. unemployment insurance, you at least had to be employed. And All if right. they're coming off school, such as it was, uh, if they're coming off school and they want a summer job, they're going to have some pretty nice, pretty lucrative opportunities. I, I would imagine. Okay, so yeah. the, the, you you had three you offered three lessons uh, that that apply to the pandemic here in, in your article, and, and the second one we want to talk about is uh, that. Central planning doesn't work. Now, th this is going to take a little while for us to, to talk about this a little bit because this is a little more involved than the, than the idea that incentives matter. But first off, let's talk about what is the, the argument that central planning doesn't work? And, and where, where does that go back to? Right. So there's a little history here. There was something in the 20th century, mid early to mid 20th century, called the socialist economic calculation debate. And the issue was, and Ludwig von Mises, the famous Austrian economist, was the first one who kind of raised it. Could you have a socialist centrally planned economy without prices? And his answer was no, because you need prices, as you mentioned, to guide behavior. And he kind of tentatively won. And then Hayek, who had been a, Friedrich Hayek, who had been a student of von Mises, came along a decade or so later, 30s and 40s, and said, you can't ever aggregate information into a central body that exists in the millions of minds. And mm -hmm. even the most powerful computers aren't gonna change that. You, you've, they just aren't going to because you know what you want, you know what your abilities are, and no one else does. I mean, there's this thing, there was a guy named, a philosopher named Michael Polanyi who talked about what he called the tacit dimension. So there's a lot of stuff you know that you can't say. Mm -hmm. So I go to a store and I don't know what kind of shirt I want, but I see it and I want it. Mm -hmm. Like, how could anyone have planned for that? And so now let's apply it. It's not the case, fortunately, that governments here wanted to go to full-fledged socialism, but they ignored the central planning insight. They ignored the fact that they didn't know enough to be able to decide which sectors to shut down, which sectors to leave open. They just don't know enough. And they made these arbitrary calls there was, there was this list of 16 essential industries that was come up with 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. And they just went to that list. They okay. didn't do any new thinking to say what's important and what's not. And by the way, even if they had done new thinking, they would have been only slightly less bad than they were. And, and so specifically, you're, you're referring to these, uh, you know, when governors were issuing stay-at-home orders or closing businesses, they tried to make this distinction. These businesses are essential and these are non-essential and they closed right. non-essential businesses. And, and, and in, in Alabama, they, they're, it worked pretty much that if, if you're an employee and you wanted to say you're an essential business, you could call yourself an essential business. So they, but we didn't have the same kind of strict list of, of you know, these are essential and these are not essential businesses. But this whole idea that somehow to know which businesses are truly essential in the economy, you'd have to know an awful lot of details about how the economy operates. Almost enough information to be able to plan an economy, right? Exactly. And then the whole idea that a whole sector is essential or not. Probably some parts of it are, some parts of it aren't. 
I just came from a funeral, which is why I'm so well dressed. People couldn't go to funerals. Now, many of us regarded that as incredibly essential. If you lost your loved one and you wanted everyone to show up, all the friends that person had gotten over the decades, you couldn't. So there's a huge mm -hmm. loss there. And by mm -hmm. the way, that doesn't get show, show up in GDP that much in gross domestic product right. uh, because you don't spend money to go to a funeral, you know, or you don't spend much. And so it, you know, it just, it's just crazy to think government can plan. Whereas if you look at what the private sector did, the NCAA canceled March Madness, NBA postponed the, the games for a couple of months, NHL postponed for a couple of months, and they did this all without any lockdowns. And mm -hmm. so they were making their own decisions based on their perceptions of risk. And you, you raise a good point here in terms of thinking about you know, essential and, and ultimately because you, you, with the example of a, a funeral, because when we think about, especially if you're not an economist, you might think about like prices, well prices and money, that shows like what's really essential. It's gotta be dollars and cents. But ultimately what's behind dollars and cents are our values, the things that we want, and, and like going to a funeral is a value, and ultimately all of those values, everything that we value in life is, com is coming from us, not like from money, right? That's right. Pillar number seven in my list of 10 is values are subjective. The value of a good or service is subjective. There's not objective value out there. You might value something very differently from the way I value it. And if we get to act in the world, we get to express those values and what we do and what we're willing to buy and so on. And again, no government can know that. Now, we've been talking most, mostly here about uh, economics and planning the economy. Now, and of course, the, the, our politicians didn't necessarily in, in, uh, limit themselves to only trying to deal with the economy. They, they were also dealing with other types of social interactions. But does this uh, argument about like uh, planning versus decentralized activity, does this apply in like our, our non-economic choices, uh, things like going to funerals or, or attending games beyond simply like producing automobiles or, or other, other things of that nature? It, it does. And again, gross domestic product doesn't count value. Gross domestic product values items sold in the private sector at the price. But let's say it costs you, you know, $5 in gas to go to a funeral, but this was someone you were really close to. And if asked and forced, you would have said, I'll pay $500. Mm -hmm. Well, there's $500 or $495 that's lost right. to the economy. Mm -hmm. It doesn't show up in GDP. And so there's a lot of stuff like that. Uh, I, I grew up in Canada, eh? And I like to go to my cottage and the Prime Minister of Canada can't keep me out because I'm a dual citizen, but what he can do, and is doing still, is say, David, you've got to go to your cottage and stay inside for two weeks. Doesn't matter that you're vaccinated, you've been vaccinated twice. So it's just this, um, you know, just the value I put on going to my cottage where I went started going when I was seven months old, mm -hmm. you know, is not expressed in what I would have paid in airfare. And and so when you know again when it came to like restricting travel or you know trying to you know, prevent interactions of people at, at, at funerals or other events like this uh, our argument about central planning not working still applies to those uh, those sort of non-economic but societal uh, 
the organization of society, not just uh, economic production. That's right. And I think one of the mistakes people make when they think they understand economics, I'm sure you've faced this, Dan, someone you're sitting beside someone on a flight and they say, oh, you're an economist. Um, What should I invest in? Or you're an economist. What's going to happen to the economy? Or you're an economist. You think about money. My wife, who's been married to an economist now for 38 years next uh, next August, uh, she would have people say, oh, you're married to an economist. He must think a lot about money. And she goes, no, he thinks a lot about human behavior. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not bad for an economist's wife. Huh? And, and that's <laughs> and, and that's really what you know what economics is all about. Is it really is human yeah. behavior and. And uh, you know, people yeah. don't. Want, you know, you can get focused in on the dollars and cents, and and, yeah. and miss the, the the fact that you know all money is a human value uh, because we value right, it. Right, right. Now, right. What, one thing you mentioned in, in here, Rich, uh, I guess follows a little bit from the central planning part of it, is that when governments try to come up with rules, a lot of times they end up trying to have a one size fits all approach, and and that's one of the areas where we re- you know. We really see a big difference from, between when government gets in and tries to do something versus markets and, and some of the very different, uh, the, the various different ways that the businesses you're talking about uh, reacted during the, the pandemic. Uh, governments try a one size fits all approach, and that doesn't you know, apply a lot of information, does it? It doesn't. And so, one of the worst expressions that we heard a lot was, we're all in this together. Now, you often hear people say something's uh, uh, literally true and it's not. Well, that one is the opposite. It's literally true, but figuratively false. In other words, the, the risk that various people were at varies so dramatically. I have a friend who you probably know about, Jay Bhattacharya. He's both an economist and a, an MD at uh, Stanford. And he pointed out to me, and then I went and checked the data. But these data were well known back in March of 2020 that the risk of someone 70 years old or more of dying was a thousand times the risk of someone 18 years old or under. And yet the same kinds of things were applied to all. How does that make sense? Schools were one of the safest things to have. And I'm not a fan of government schools. I think government should get out of schooling. But if they're in it and they're taxing people, they, they should provide it if only for the daycare aspect of it. So you know, millions of parents had to figure out how to adjust their schedules to take care of their kids because government shut down one of the safest places there were, there were one of the sets of safest places there were during the pandemic. Yeah, yeah definitely true. And uh, again, you know, with, with trying to prescribe rules that would have to apply to everybody, again, without taking into account some of the, the, the variations. Um, you know, right. I guess, I guess there are some issues with governments trying to treat different people treat people differently, and so maybe that that sort of leads to a one size fits all approaches. But it's certainly a limitation. Now, something you mentioned there is going to lead into our, our third point that I want to take up, and that's um, uh, the third lesson you offer here is externalities. And I guess um, this is one that you actually heard a fair number, this, this is one from economics that did get, uh, get into the uh, discussions a lot, the policy discussions. You did hear people use this term externality, but they weren't, they weren't necessarily using it as carefully as, as economists would like to use it. So something like maybe they took the, uh, 
the, the Reader's Digest version of this and, and, and ran with it and, and, not, and, and not considering something. But let's start first by let's make sure we understand, uh, explain for people what we mean, what economists mean by externality. Right, and the main one people typically worry about is a negative externality, so that's what I'm going to focus on. So the, 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 the standard example is pollution. Um, a plant puts pollution in the air, it floats downstream in the wind into tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of homes. It's hard to come up with a market solution to that. How would mm -hmm. you get people together? And that's what people have seen traditionally as a case for some kind of government intervention because that is an externality. The idea is it's a cost imposed on people that is not taken account of by the people imposing it. So economists often automatically go to the government as, as the solution. And if it were a different interview, I'd get into what's wrong with that generally. But I want to talk about what's wrong with that specifically in this case. Imagine to take the pollution example, change it a little, and imagine that the polluter is also polluting himself. That changes mm -hmm. things a little, doesn't it? So now he has some incentive not to do it. Well, that's more like COVID. I'm going out there and I might have it, I might not, I might give it to someone else, I might not, but I might get it from someone else. Mm -hmm. And so I have some incentive to be a little careful. Uh, moreover, people who talk about externalities, people in kind of who, who are very free market, I'm sure you do, I do, often talk about Ronald Coase and we kind of put him on a pedestal and a lot of people have misunderstood Coase but Coase didn't misunderstand himself <laughs> and the way people have talked about it who really do get Coase is to say well it doesn't mean you shouldn't have government it doesn't mean the, pri the private sector takes care of everything but it does suggest that the best way to handle things is have the least cost avoid or handle them and so the example I gave in my article is airports and noise. The airport, the, the planes come in, they make noise. Is the best way to handle that to change the technology of the airplanes or limit the times in which they can fly? Maybe. But the best way might be, especially if there are only a thousand or fewer houses as there are around Monterey where they land, how about to have, have the government tax the airlines or tax the airport to pay for double and triple windows for those thousand houses. And that might solve a large part of the problem. Take that now over to COVID. Given that the elderly are most at risk, how about focus on protecting them? And mm -hmm. here's the nice thing. People over 65, very few of them percentage-wise work outside the home. So they're already to some extent locking down. Mm -hmm. And so let, you know, do that, maybe subsidize getting meals to them, uh, subsidize people who work in nursing homes so they don't have to jump from one to the other and spread the disease. They maybe get paid double the salary for a few months in order to stay in one home. And by the way, all of those costs are rounding error on $2 trillion. <laughs> and so that could have been done much more cheaply and let other people be out there and have their lives. Yeah, because I mean, it, 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 I think there's a very good point is to talk about this very difference, uh, difference in, in vulnerability to, the, the, to COVID and uh, how it was, you know, from an economic perspective, it, it, it would come immediately out of uh, thinking about this in, in externality terms and thinking about the least cost avoider or, or essentially another part of it, like who's, you know who's actually bearing the externality you know where because not every, for, for some people 
you know, for many people, the, the, the external cost element part of it was pretty small because they, they faced yeah, such a like small risk. Kids. Yeah, for pretty much for people under age 30, it was extremely small. And uh, uh, so you know, that was something that, and it seemed to take a long time for folks in the, the public health community to get around to talk about this at all. I mean, uh, it wasn't until maybe in the fall, you, you mentioned your uh, colleague, Jay Bhattacharya, who was part of a, something called the Great Barrington Declaration that, that we've talked about on another right. episode of this show uh, previously, but you know, to talk about the idea of focused protection. So, I mean, from an, econ from an economic standpoint, I think, and I remember thinking about this back last March, like immediately you have to be thinking about, or we would be led to thinking about something like focused protection almost immediately out of our, our externality approach here, right? Exactly, exactly. So to go back again to pollution, let's say that somehow, it ends up going to a, you know tens of thousands of people, but it's only people who are who are have uh, asthma, you know. Mm -hmm. Focus on protecting them, maybe, and, and not worry about the pollution per se. I mean, just to take a, a possibility, yeah. and and it's that kind of thing. Get people thinking about details rather than we're all in this together. Yeah, and uh, th that was certainly a, a detail which you know ended up getting sort of glossed over or ignored that, that uh, certainly uh, I think you know, would have been very important to uh, economists. Now, there, there was something you, you also mentioned in your article um, that I, I guess you think of it in terms of incentives or, or uh, that with, with regard to uh, the COVID vaccines that yeah. I think has actually been one of, you know, not only have the amazing technical element of, of coming up with these vaccines so quickly, but um, many times when you have a life-saving drug or a vaccine, in this case, government attempts to try to make it affordable through price controls by simply telling right. uh, people you, you can sell, but you can't sell it for very much because this is so important to people. Uh, yeah. we're, we're not, we're not going to let you sell it for very high. We have to make it affordable. And the government did a little bit different ap approach here, here in this case, they, by going right. ahead and, and purchasing the, the, the vaccines and then providing them at no cost to, to the public. Right, the government pre-committed to purchasing hundreds of millions of doses, pre-committed to helping companies invest in the facilities, although interestingly Pfizer said no to that part yeah. of it. And, and so, yes, if the, if the thing was to avoid price controls, that was probably a good move. I'm not positive there would have been price controls. I mean, there would have been talk about them, but uh, I'm not. I'm not positive there would have been. So I'm not convinced that would have been that that was a good measure, especially when you consider that we didn't use prices to allocate it. And mm -hmm. so, what if they? What if we'd said, okay, go ahead, you can do it, you can make it, you can price it, and then you know, because they're worried about bad will, they probably would have priced to the first few million people, let's say a thousand a pop. And then priced to twenty at twenty dollars a pop to a few million people in the care homes, you know, because that's a goodwill thing. So it's it's a it's a tougher issue than I think some mm -hmm. people have said. Well, I, I just you know, I think a lot of times politicians like the idea of price controls. Like for instance, uh, yeah. you're, you're, yeah. during uh, price gouging, or people are concerned about. Uh, scarce supplies and, and laws against yeah. price gouging. These these laws for yeah. the politicians are pretty cheap. You can just pass a law and, and, and ban people from doing stuff. Whereas, uh, you know, to 
uh, actually purchase the vaccines, the government did have to step up with a little bit of money. I, I think it's by yeah. far the best spent money that the federal government has probably uh, spent of the trillions that they've spent here. That, that, that was a pretty wise expenditure of, of that money. I, I agree with that if the alternative was price controls. I'm just challenging whether it was, yeah. but if it was, I absolutely agree. I'm just saying that we lost one of the things that economists had a real insight about, which is that if you take something extremely valuable, it's generally a bad idea to give it away. And if you think of how crazy and, and unorganized the distribution of the vaccine was for the first few months, and a few hundred thousand Americans died during that time, it's a little sobering. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. Um, you know, but, but we know we didn't end up, at least we didn't have to end up with the uh, whole issue of trying to hope that companies will pro, you know, provide it when they're not clear they're going to get compensated for it. And, and uh, that's true. And we managed to, to avoid that. So that, that is one of the, you know, I guess far more important is the amazing technology behind uh, being able yeah. to come up with these so highly effective vaccines so quickly. But, so just and they, uh, and they came up with it on the weekend of January 2020. Yeah, and that, that that's, was when they came up with. It. That's really something uh, uh, amazing when you think about that. That going forward, and when in the past it's taken years for the people yeah. to come up with a, a formula for a vaccine, and this this was amazingly quick. So we just have a few moments yeah. to, to wrap up here. Are there any last thoughts you, you would like to leave us with? Well, uh, again, economics matters. The the essentials matter. People can get hung up thinking economics is about money, it's about equations, it's about graphs, it's about human behavior, incentives matter, central planning doesn't work, externalities are a much more complicated case than many people make them out to be. Well, thanks very much for coming on the show, and thank you all for joining us. Join us again next time for another eConversations. This has been eConversations a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University.